Hello, this is Joshua Schmidt coming back to you with another episode of the Nerd Assassin Podcast. On these episodes, we've been looking at some of the fundamentals of economics, because I feel like a lot of people have strong feelings on economic policies without really having like a good base. So we're starting looking at The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. In chapter five here, the title is kind of a mouthful of the real and nominal price of commodities or of their price in labor and their price in money. And I think Adam Smith's main claim in this, in this chapter is that the only real value of a commodity is the amount of labor to produce it. So I'm going to start off with a quote here. Every man is rich or poor according to the degree in which he can afford to enjoy the necessaries conveniences, and amusements of human life. So after we've got division of labor established, which you, we talk about in the first few chapters, if you haven't heard them, go back and listen to those episodes. But after a division of labor has been established, most of the goods that a person makes, it, most goods that a person uses are not produced by himself. So therefore, to get these sort of necessities or conveniences of life which would mean you're either rich or poor rich people have a lot of these conveniences poor people don't it's based on the amount of labor that you can command as you're up producing yourself most of your goods are obtained by the labor of others so if I have a commodity that I've made that I don't plan to consume its value is the quantity of labor that it can purchase or command. So when I'm exchanging it, I'm thinking about all of the stuff that I can get for it. So therefore, labor is the real measure of value for all commodities. The real price of something that I acquire is the toil or trouble I can save myself and instead impose it on other people. So for example, if I need a hammer, I'm saving myself all the time of building my own hammer. Or if I need a nail, I'm not having to go ahead and carve my own nail to smith it out. I'm imposing that on somebody else to make for me. Really, its value to me is saving myself that toil. And the original purchase of anything is not with gold or silver, but the toil that it took to produce. Therefore, all the wealth of the world was originally made by labor. We've heard this quote before that wealth is power. And when we're talking about wealth being powerful, you're not, you don't automatically get some civil or military power from wealth, even though you may be able to buy it. But the real power of wealth is the, that you're able to command labor or the produce of labor, which is the same thing as labor in the end with that money. So somebody who's truly wealthy is able to get all these conveniences and necessities without using his own labor. Instead, he's able to purchase other people's labor. He's directing other people's labor. And I think this is a really important point to keep into your head that everything essentially boils down to labor in the end. Money that I have is to purchase other people's labor. Everything that I produce comes from my own labor. However, labor is really difficult to measure. So you usually don't see people estimating their value based on labor. Because we're not just looking at pure time when we're talking about how much labor went into something. 
it could take an hour to do one thing and two hours to do a different thing. But if those two hours were easy compared to one hour of hard work, the one hour might be worth more. So you have to factor in both hardship and ingenuity into this value, to this amount of labor. Another quote from the book here, there may be more labor in an hour's hard work than in two hours easy business, or in an hour's application to a trade, which it costs 10 years labor to learn, than in a month's industry at ordinary and obvious employment. So essentially what that means is somebody might take only an hour's work, but they had 10 years of study to figure out how to do that hour's work. So that labor is going to be worth more than five hours or a whole work day on something that was easy and quick to figure out, like such as mowing lawn compared to doing neurosurgery. So the way that we evaluate this different levels of labor to estimate this values of labor is it's haggled and bargained in the marketplace. There's no real direct measure. And even though this haggling and bargaining isn't an exact science, it doesn't give us an exact measure, it's good enough to allow us to use it in common life, to go about our, our life and make these exchanges. And usually what ends up happening is we compare commodities to commodities value rather than labor, even though labor is the real value of it. Because commodities are more plain, palpable object rather than some sort of abstract notion. But it's still important to remember all the value comes back to the labor to produce it and the labor and the value of the, what you get from it and what you can command. After the establishment of money that we talked about in chapter four, money ends up being the instrument of commerce that's used in day-to-day -day life. At this point, people end up estimating the worth of their produce of labor in the quantity of money more than anything else. So the butcher is not thinking about his meat based on how many loaves of bread or how many pints of beer you can get. He's thinking of the number of pence per pound that it costs, and then later on he's exchanging that for other things. Since that's become the common instrument, that's usually how people are thinking of value. So you might try to argue, why isn't gold or silver or dollars the real value of money, since that's what we're exchanging in? But the reason it can't be is because the value of gold and silver fluctuate. The value of a dollar fluctuates. And a quantity which itself is varying can't be used as an accurate measure of value. The same way pounds, the amount of pounds that I weigh, I can use that to measure my weight because it always stays the same. I'm not worried about a pound today being different than a pound tomorrow. In the same way, I can't compare a dollar today to a dollar tomorrow because the value of it's changing. One example that he gave that's probably the most drastic example is in America when they discovered the gold and silver mines, the value of gold and silver dropped by a third. So in a decade, we ended up changing the whole price of all everything by a third. Whereas labor doesn't have these fluctuations. Labor is of equal value to the laborer all the time. He needs to lay down this, give up the same portion of ease, liberty, and happiness today as he does next week in order to produce the same thing. So you imagine like a farmer producing corn, he's putting in the same amount of labor day in and day out, assuming that he's of the same health and dexterity and skill. You could try to argue that the goods that he receives vary. Even though I'm putting in the same amount of work, I might make more nails one day or the other, so isn't labor not constant? But in reality, 
the labor cost isn't changing. I'm still giving up the same liberty and happiness. It's just the value of the goods is changing. What I, what I can purchase with that labor has changed. One other quote that we have here, labor alone, never varying in its own value, is the ultimate and real standard by which the value of all commodities can, at all times and places, be estimated and compared. It is their real price. Money is their nominal price only. Another argument that Adam Smith takes off the table here is an employer may think that labor cost is changing because from one decade to another, he might be paying a different amount. But in reality, the labor is the same for the laborer. What is happening is the employer is exchanging a different amount of goods for that labor. Labor is the real price. It's the, qu the quantity and, and conveniences of life that I'm giving up for it. And money we can think of as the nominal price. A laborer was going to be rich or poor, well or badly paid, based on the real price and not the nominal price. I don't honestly care, and you wouldn't honestly care either, whether you're getting paid $10 or $1,000. All you care about is how much can I buy with that. So if you got paid 100 times more, but fast food cost 100 times more, you're going to feel the same amount of rich or poorly paid. That's not... Really, it's that real price. How much of my necessaries and conveniences am I giving out of my life? How much labor am I giving up in order to get labor from other people? Now, you could say this is just speculation. We're talking abstract notions. There's why does it even matter? But in re there is actual real world practical consequences to these distinctions. The real price is always equal to the value, but the nominal price can fluctuate with the price of gold or silver. So for example, if I sell my land for perpetual rent, or put it another way, if I'm renting out my land with a century-long lease to somebody who owns a farm, which was common, I would want to get the same value for giving up that land year in and year out. I don't actually care if I get the same amount of money. And there's a couple fluctuations that can change that if I had just written the contract in the amount of money. One, the different amount of metal in a coin. So as time goes on, the leaders of the country, the princes, tend to diminish the amount of metal in a coin, and very rarely do they augment it. Very rarely do they add more metal to the coin. So usually the prices of the contracts need to be written in the weight of metal and not the number of coins. But even then it can still change. So... Over time, English rents have held their value much better if they're written in the amount of corn rather than the amount of silver that I'm going to rent it out for. So for example, college leases, the way the contracts were originally written was for you to lease out a room or lease out land, one third of that rent price is written in corn and the other two thirds is written in silver. So I would look at I need this many bushels of corn and what's the market price of corn? I'm gonna need that much money plus this much silver money, this many shillings. And if you look at it a century later, that exact same contract, which is still in place, was getting two thirds of the value of the contract from corn and one third from silver, which basically meant for the same amount of silver, I can buy one fourth as much corn. 
So the corn kind of held its value while silver started to go down. Overall, when you look at it, the value of corn varies little from century to century. Equal amounts of corn will command the same amount of labor, way better than silver. However, if you zoom in from year to year, the value of silver, the value of a shilling, tends to vary little. Not, it tends not to vary very much. So silver tends to be a better way to write contracts from year to year. But only labor is a universal constant for price over both time and place. So here we're talking about time. From century to century, corn's a little bit better. From year to year, silver's a little bit better because you might have a boom crop or you might have a drought that makes the corn price change a lot from one year to the other. But labor is a universal constant. These distinctions that we're talking about are useful in these long letting situations that we described, but not very much in day-to-day -day situations. If you look at the exact same time and place, the real and the nominal price are proportionate for commodities. That means today, where I'm living, if a commodity costs more, it can command me more labor in that same time and place. And if it compared to a commodity that costs less, will let me command less labor. So we're talking about value here, how much labor you can command. Money then is an exact measure of the real exchangeable value of all commodities at the same time and place, but at the same time and place only. So in day-to-day -day situations, that's why this money works for today and tomorrow. But I say same time and place because of the time with the gold and corn distinction we were looking at, but also at distant places, you don't have this regular proportion. So Adam Smith compares London and Calcutta. You might have a merchant that will spend half a shilling for something in Calcutta, where he might be able to buy a lot of labor with that half a shilling, but he's willing to go to London, sell it for a shilling, where he might be able to buy less labor with that shilling, but all he cares about is how much money he has in his home place because he's not, he doesn't want to live in Calcutta, he's not willing to spend it there. So this just gives us the example that at distant places, this proportion doesn't exist. It's only at the same time and place, which is why money works for everyday situations, but has real world consequences when we're looking at different time or place. Then um, just to go down the road a little bit on some history of money, um, Adam Smith's going to talk about. So something that I found interesting is that a country, even though they coin different metals, so you've heard me talk about shillings, um, I might have mentioned pence and guineas in the past. In England, they had all three of these, a pence being a copper coin, a shilling being a silver coin, and a guinea being a gold coin. So they'll have various metals, but usually there's one standard, which happens to be the first metal they started to coin. So in Rome, they used the copper. So if somebody owed somebody a lot of money, they, you would say that they owed him a lot of copper, or I had a lot of the other person's copper. Whereas England, the standard tends to be silver, which just is the first coin that they made, even though they have all three. And for a long time, this... This standard metal 
so silver in England, was the only legal tender. So when I wrote up a contract, I wrote it up in the amount of silver because the amount of guineas to shillings or pence to shillings wasn't written into law anywhere. So they might change over time based on if somebody found like a really good gold mine, all of a sudden the price of gold will come down. Eventually, as people got used to these proportions, it became public law and written into there. And at that point, then the amount of shillings or guineas that were written in a contract was just a nominal distinction, just a number distinction. Because we knew if I had 21 shillings, it's equal to one guinea. But there's still fluctuations when the proportions change. So at some point, the law could change because gold prices have really come down, where they now decide it's 18 shillings for a guinea instead of 21. And the other thing that can happen is besides just these proportions changing, even if the proportions are kept the same, the value in the metal could change or the amount of metal in the coin could change. So another example Adam Smith gives is at some point England decided to augment their gold coin, augment their guinea. So the guinea was supposed to have a quarter ounce of gold, but over time it ended up getting shaved down and maybe it went down to, let's say, a fifth ounce of gold. They raised the value back up to it. They made sure it's a quarter ounce every time now. And what that would lead you to think about is now shillings are worth more because I can now take the same amount of silver and get more gold back because the coins now actually contain more gold in them. And at the time in England, there was no duty or signerage on minting gold. So duty or signerage would be when I bring in an ounce of gold, you don't give me necessarily four guineas back. You don't give me an exactly a, if I come in with a pound of gold, you're not giving me a pound of gold back made into coins. If I had a, you had a duty or signerage, you'll keep some of the gold for yourself in order to pay the mint for having to make all this. In England, that wasn't the case. So if I brought in a pound of gold, I'd leave with a pound of gold coin. An interesting fact is in 2000, the U.S. mints alone made $25 billion just on this signerage. Another thing to talking, now that we brought up mints and having a sort of central standard, is that countries need to be careful not to make it profitable to melt down their coins. So you could get in this point where the amount of gold to silver shillings is off, the amount of guineas to shillings is off. So what I would want to do is I want to take all of my gold coins and exchange them for silver coins. Then I melt down the silver into just a bar of silver. They're no longer coins anymore. Then I sell that silver and get gold coins and I end up with more gold coins than I started with. So I can just repeat this process over and over again. There's a few ways to, for a mint to prevent this from happening. One way that they were using in England at this time their price of silver and copper were a little bit off. So what they ended up making a law is that I could not pay for anything with copper, with pence, unless it was a fraction of a shilling. So if you had something that cost, so 12 pence equal a shilling. If you have something that cost two shillings, I couldn't pay you with 24 pence. I had to pay you with the two shillings. But if you had something that cost one and a half shillings, then I would give you the shillings until I just gave you six pence. I just gave you the half. So that's an interesting way of like making sure that this doesn't happen because then I can't go and exchange all of my copper for silver. Another way that the print fits is with that signerage or duty that we talked about. 
So you make sure the mint makes money by making the metal into coins, and that way you don't feel like melting them down. This has another advantage, is that if your money ends up in a different country, let's say somebody who's wealthy moves from England to France, once they're in France, they don't want to take all of their gold England coins and melt them down and make French coins because of that duty or signage. Instead, it's more profitable for them to exchange them back and those coins go back to England. And you may ask, why do these gold and silver prices change all the time? And it's really because they're just like other commodities. When you, if there's some overmining or undermining, the prices raise up and down. So I'm trying to guess how much gold coins the mint's gonna wanna make, so I'll take that much gold out of the mine. But if I overguess and import it in the country, rather than risk exporting it, I'd rather just take the waste and loss and just give it to England. So overall, again, what this chapter is about is that the value of any commodity is the amount of labor that it takes to produce it. The amount of worth of something to me is how much labor that I can command. So a wealthy person is able to command more labor in order to get the necessities and conveniences of life than somebody who's poor. So that ends chapter five for us. Next week, we're going to look at chapter six, where we look at what are all the components that go into the price of something. If you guys want to continue the conversation, feel free to reach out to me at The Nerd Assassin on Twitter or LinkedIn. Otherwise, make sure to subscribe so that way you get notified when new episodes come out. Thanks and have a good day, guys.